Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. And I want to thank you all for coming today, and welcome to our November Conservative Women's Network Lunch. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner here from the Heritage Foundation. We've had this uh, wonderful lunch series now for almost 20 years. Today I'm pleased to introduce our November CWN speaker, Veronique Deruji. Last year, Veronique spoke on a CWN panel about key economic issues and did such a great job explaining why women benefit from less government control that we asked her to come back and talk on that topic a bit again. Veronique is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a nationally syndicated columnist. Her primary research interests include the U.S. economy, the federal budget, homeland security, taxation, tax competition, and financial privacy. Her popular weekly charts, published by the Mercatus Center, address economic issues ranging from lessons on creating sustainable economic growth to the implications of government tax and fiscal policies. She's testified numerous times before Congress on the effects of fiscal stimulus, debt, and deficits, and regulation on the economy. Her commentary has been featured in a wide range of media outlets, including Bloomberg Television, Fox News, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, to name just a few. In 2015, she was named in Politico's magazine guide to the top 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics. Previously, she was a resident at the American Enterprise Institute. She's been a policy analyst at the Cato Institute and a research fellow at the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Before moving to the United States, she oversaw academic programs in France for the Institute for Humane Studies Europe. She received her master's in economics from the Paris Dauphine University. I didn't say that right, did I? <laughs> Dauphine. Dauphine? Okay, Dauphine University. And her PhD in economics from the Pantheon Sorbonne University. She's a great lady. She's come to a number of our events, and I'm sure to heritage events. Um, and she speaks of economics in some plain and simple terms that are uh, easier to understand than some in your field. Um, the young women at our events have really enjoyed hearing from you. She's a mother of two. She's a great lady. Please join me in welcoming Veronique Deruji. Hi everyone, it's a pleasure to be there and uh, welcome to everyone who is watching us online. It's great to be here. Bridget and I will go way back, <laughs> way, way back and I, and I love my November 
talks here. I really appreciate you having me come back. And, uh, and it's, uh, it, it's the, the issue of a woman, women in the state is actually, I think, an interesting issue for me because, uh, as an economist and, and, you know, conservative libertarian, I tend to, uh, just stay away from talking about women's specific issues. I actually think that gender neutral policies are better, that, um, that we should, you know, you just, just sound economics, that targeted policies, I mean, whether they're for women or for minorities or for uh, small businesses or green energies are actually very distortive. And so, uh, when you guys asked me to talk about this, I was, I was, I was kind of like, uh, it forced me to do something I'm not necessarily comfortable. That being said, I mean, as you, as you said, Michelle, as a, as a mother of two teenagers and, uh, obviously a woman myself, I realized that I really stand on the shoulder of giants, uh, and most of them women who have actually really fought really hard because there was a time where there was a real, real need to fight for Basic, uh, you know, equality for uh, for women, and and we have come a long way. And denying that fact is one of the things that usually uh, sets me apart from a lot of women who call themselves feminist. And it doesn't mean I'm not a feminist. I'm absolutely a feminist, but I this is where often I disagree, which is yes, there still is a long way to go. But we have come a long way. Just using my own example, I can't ignore. I mean, whether people approve of my choice, I often, personal choice, don't approve of some of the choices I've made. But when you think about the ability of someone like me uh, to decide to pick up and leave my own country, get a job, again, in a foreign country, get married, have children, get divorced, and not fall into shame and poverty, this is a tremendous advancement for the ability of women to choose you know, a productive life and the life that they want. It doesn't mean that every productive life means working. I mean, women today have this luxury often, or at least when they don't have the luxury of working, it's not because, um, or when they, have, when they don't have the luxury of staying at home, it's not because they are forced to stay at home. And this is pretty phenomenal. And as women, we should always remember how lucky we are to live at this time as opposed to, and I'm not obviously a unique case. And, uh, and I'll, I'll go further. You know, three years ago, the father of my children passed away. I mean, it is a statement to the world we live in that I could still stand on my feet thanks to a job I have, take care of myself, own a home, and be independent, get a tremendous support from my community. Being a woman, being single, having children, working is not a source of discrimination anymore. I mean, there's still issues, and we can talk about during, about them during the Q&A. That being said, there are problems. I mean, we can address questions of active discrimination. They do happen. I mean, no one is perfect, and it's, I think, human nature means that there will always be people we can point out to say, wow, these guys are real jerks, and, uh, and hope for, you know, the betterment of, uh, of these people. But there, what's interesting about, it's like old-fashioned 
discrimination or, or against women used to actually be very blatant. It's like you didn't, you couldn't work, right? You were not allowed to own property. You weren't allowed to, you didn't have uh, women in combat, right? They were specifically things that women were banned off, even though I have friends who tell me that they actually love having women in combat, if, you know, better us than them. But, you know, that's some men. Today, the discrimination or actually the, the impediment of the state against women actually presents itself in a very gender-neutral fashion and yet tends to fall disproportionately on women. And I want to I name a few. And then after that, I want to give a warning about some of the areas where I think conservatives are sliding that actually are dangerous for women and improving um, women's freedom and, and the march towards, you know, whomever and whatever we want to be. So, so some of these areas where I think uh, women have, I'm, I'm going to give you a few, and uh, where we could use some more um, help. So the convergence between men and women in education, in life choices, in professional uh, choices has uh, been one of the greatest achievements, I think, of you know the, the last decades. But one of the things that is sure is that for women who've decided to enter the workforce, it means that activities that, for better or worse, still disproportionately fall onto women to do, like house cleaning. I understand it's changing, but house cleaning and 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 caring for children. I mean, is actually has to, had to take a step back. For these women, and for a lot of women, whatever your situation, whether it's because you want to work more or just simply enter the labor force, restrictive immigration policies against low-skill immigrants is an impediment. It means that more access to low-skill immigrants will actually help women because you find low-skill migrants in mostly three areas, caring for children, house cleaning, and construction. And two of them are heavily, or yard work, and, and two of these are like really heavily um, an area that could very much help uh, women. And you see it in the academic literature where more allowing more low-skill immigration has helped everyone, but it has an, an low-income American I mean, there's there's a small sliver of uh, category, but uh, but has actually helped lower income Americans get better job, move up the ladder, because a lot of the things it freed a lot of their time to do other things at a cheaper price. Um, so restrictive immigration policies uh, are is one of is one of the areas where actually uh, is still holding us back. Another area that I think we never think really about is tariffs. So we know that tariffs is a tax on consumption on goods that we import from foreigners. This is often a flat type of tax. It's a regressive tax, and we know, and it's no surprise, it hurts low-income Americans the most. What we don't necessarily think about is how much it affects women. So 75% of the burden of tariffs fall on apparels. Well, 66% of the burden of that particular category 
fall on women apparel, right? That's almost three billion dollars a year falling on products that are exclusively consumed by women, right? That's an eleven percent、uh, price gap between men and women. There's an easy fix to this. We know, economists know and understand that the economic benefit of free trade is fundamentally a unilateral case. What it means is that the country would benefit, everyone would benefit if we lowered and get rid of tariffs, all forms of trade barriers, and that's the kicker. Independently of what other countries are doing. For better or worse, the way we've improved and augmented free trade in the last decades, right, is by having this uh, uh, multinational、um, agreements, right, and they they're great. But what they imply is basically we'll lower our tariffs if you lower yours, and we've actually tend to forgotten that actually really the case for tariffs is one where it doesn't matter what you guys are doing. Our country will win if we lower our tariffs. So that's an easy fix. Wow, it's an easy fix on paper. Politically, it's not an easy fix, but it's worth considering. Tariffs are hurting women more than they're hurting men.、Um, another one that may be controversial for、uh, conservatives: the war on drug is extremely punishing for women. Um, they, we've seen the incarceration rate for women skyrock since the '80s, and these rates have also increased as、um, the system has started targeting more and more the people living with drug dealers. It's basically punishment by association if you don't.、Um, also,、uh, punishing having mandatory sentencing for for minor off- offenses. Um, and you see a lot of women. It's so the the there are much fewer women in jail as a total number than men. It's still the case, but as a share of women in jail, the, the women in jail for drug offenses is significantly higher than men. What does this mean? And again, you can be in favor of ending the war on drugs, or at least at least on pot. You know, I mean, I'm not asking everyone to be a radical. Libertarian, but and it doesn't mean you condone the behavior of people who consume drugs. You know, you can actually look at the legal implication of a policy that is sending a massive number of people in jail. What does it mean when we send all these people in jail? And I like to point out that a lot, especially when it comes to marijuana, it's like victimless crimes. So it's it's like not to be compared with you know killing someone.、Um, what does it mean for the families? Well, if you send the men in jail, it means a lot of women without husbands.、Uh, for the children, definitely a lot of children without fathers. When you send both parents, which often happens, you end up with children without parents. This is something that is really important to consider. No matter what your objection to the substance is, it is always worth dissociating both side of these issues and thinking 
about the impact it has on women, and it definitely has. There's another as- aspect of you know anything that sends people to jail. And again, I'm not saying you commit a crime, you shouldn't go to jail. The question is, what is it we label a crime? It's like what it means for the family life and for earning abilities when you reenter the workforce. And often it means massive, significantly, like massive loss of income going forward for, for the women, um, lower wages, and a lot of things. I'll move on to a less controversial topic, regulations. Um, there are a lot of, so women um, take care of children, take care of sick parents, it's still culturally, that's what we do. We do it more. Again, it's not that things aren't changing or evolving, but I mean, I wouldn't trade my place with anyone. You know, I'm happy that that burden has fallen on me the most. But it is a fact, and it means that we need more flexibility. Uh, we want more flexibility, and a lot of regulation in the labor place that make the ability to get in and out of the workforce or have different work arrangement, uh, these, these regulations that make it harder, obviously hinder women's ability to grow. Another important aspect of the regulation of the labor market is occupational licensing. Right, That's at the state level. I mean, we a third of occupations now require licensing. We can have a debate about medical licensing or things that people perceive can put people's lives at risk. I'm an extremist, like in most things on these issues, but I will grant you this. However, you would be stunned. I recommend going to the Institute for Justice website and look at Read everything they have done on occupational licensing. And you will be shocked to see how many hours are required uh, to get a license for things that are completely, you know, like there's no way you're hurting anyone. Maybe you'll create bad style by, you know, like decorating a house, like um, uh, designers, uh, hair braiders, I mean, the worst that can happen, and, you know, I, what can happen, really? I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, you get out with your ugly braids, and then you wash your hair if you don't like it, right? That's how it works, right? Um, a horse masseuse. Uh, the number of requirements. So, for instance... Um, I was like, I was looking in Missouri. Missouri requires a thousand hours at a school of cosmetology or 3,000 hours in an apprenticeship, a written exam and a practical exam. These training, um, like that's just for becoming, you know, you don't even have, it's not for cutting hair. You're not, it's just for being a cosmetologist to, to, makeup on or clean faces or whatever it is. Um, uh, Rachel Grazler here was saying the other day we were on a panel together. She was talking about how the requirements for daycare, if you want to above a certain number of kids, the requirements are such 
that is a complete disincentive for women who could actually stay home, take care of their kids, and, you know, um, have, have supplemental income by taking care of other kids because obviously they have a preference and, and, they're, and they're good at this. The requirements are insane, but it also makes the price of childcare really expensive for those women who want to join the labor force or want to stay in the labor force or want to actually increase their their hours at work. I mean, she was talking about the fact that in Maryland, where she lives, I think, you have to have an emergency car with car seats always ready to go with all the car seats for the number of kids that you have. It's It's completely crazy. And it's not just that it dissuades women to do activities that they would want to do, but it also, the end result is either you get fewer uh, childcare professionals available or, uh, or and, 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 and it raises cost, or for those who are still there and willing to foot the bill, I mean, the costs are going up, which is also hurting women. So this is something uh, worth thinking about. The other thing that's interesting is when you go and look at occupational licenses and you see that actually it's almost 30% of, of, the, uh, of the profession that are women-specific that requires licensing, while it's only 23% for men-specific occupation, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean women are... Um, Often, you know, in, in professions that are, you know, not necessarily, um, I mean, I'm sure there's like professions like nursing and a bunch of others, but it's, uh, I, I can't imagine that this is dictated by the fact that there are more risk, more lives at risks with women being in the job. Um, I could go on and on and on with all these examples. There's one one good thing, by the way. It's like like last time I gave this this talk, I talked about how um, there was a the, there was a marriage penalty because the the way the tax code was structured meant that basically if a woman married a man who made significantly more than her, if they were going to file jointly then they were going to, um, basically her lower income was going to be taxed at a higher marginal tax rate. So this has been actually changed with the new, with the new tax law. The other thing is that women are very entrepreneurial and, uh, and they are the head of a lot of small businesses. And a lot of them like reported their income, their business income on, uh, as personal income and with high marginal tax rates, um, uh, this was a real penalty for women entrepreneurship. Well, uh, that also has been changed um, uh, for, I mean, for the best. Some people say the adjustment was too much and it's going to lead to a lot of abuses. Um, but, and so I suspect there's going to be some readjustments. There, but, so there's there's some real, you know, improvement on, on that front. That, that said, um, it is clear that high marginal rates and, and, and marginal tax rates have been have been reduced, but in my opinion, um, not enough. But again, 
I also think that as long as we're not going to shrink the size of government, uh, I'm very resistant to cutting uh, to cutting taxes on the on the on the individual side because we can't continue kicking the can down the road to our children. But the truth of the matter is like the marginal tax rates being high, while in the short run has not that much effect on the supply of labor, right? It's not if taxes go up, you're not going to change your behavior immediately and your supply, because most of us are in jobs where we can't, right? You can't start suddenly, you know, avoiding taxes or or change your profession. I mean, some people can, but the vast majority of us can't. Um, what the literature so, shows is that um, there are moments, right? At the, at, at the margin, there are moments in people's lives where these higher rates actually change uh, the behavior of people. It changed the supply of labor. So when you get out of school, when you're going to go to school, and this is how you see, for instance, that high marginal rate tend to dissuade women in particular, but also men, but to go into profession that are going to be really taxed really high. So instead of being a heart surgeon, you decide to be a pediatrician. A lot of women make that choice all the time, right? Now, it's it's not a bad choice. It's like it's not it's it's not a bad choice, but it's unfortunate when our professional choices are dictated by the tax code. And and we see that women are particularly sensitive to these high marginal rates, right? Um, and you can say, well, it's because we have the luxury to do it, or we have other priorities. Fine, it's still. A problem, in my opinion, that tax code shouldn't be a factor in how we decide to live our lives. And this has not been addressed. Another moment is like how soon people retire. So you raise taxes. Again, it may not really have a direct impact on in the moment. That being said, it may actually change the calculation of how long you're going to stay in the workforce and be productive, right? Um, um, and I, again, want to make sure that when I say be productive by working, it doesn't mean I'm dismissive of other life choices. But that's, you know, one way of being productive. Another thing that's been really interesting has been shown with the literature, because I know that conservatives make the mistake of focusing too much on taxes and not enough on spending. These effects that I talk about, about how high taxes change the labor supply, they are, they're basically... Um, um, increased by generous b- benefits. So benefit, when when you're going to decide to work or not work, um, this decision is going to be ma- more acute if there's actually very high benefits to go with it. And, and, um, and so those two togethers are things to think about. And that leads me to my warning to conservatives. Um, There is a real shift in the way conservatives are talking about issues like paid leave. And there's, you know, there's a a call, a real, real political call that is sustained by some conservative that women should be getting paid leave, we should be supporting more, 
pro-family policies. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous because of what I just mentioned, right? You increase benefits, and that actually kind of has, uh, in conjunction with higher taxes, it can have some effect in the life decisions that you make. And that, to me, is a problem. But it also has a problem because the literature very clearly shows we won't be surprised. There's no free lunch, right? Generous, I mean, paid leave policy uh, tend to backfire against the beneficiaries. And um, Europe has been really, obviously, a great place to look for um, the impact of paid leave policy on women. But we also can see it in the U.S. Because there is this idea that the U.S., if you use a BLS number, it says that there's only 15% of employers or women are benefiting from paid leave. The reality is is actually uh, much, much, I mean, this number is much, much bigger because it ignores that a lot of women are actually getting paid leave through disability, temporary disability insurance, that there's also a lot of different ways that women get paid leave. And there's an excellent report at Cato by Vanessa Brown-Calder that actually looks at all these issues. And one of the things that uh, comes out of the literature is that the real number, and by the way, Rachel here at Heritage has done also some tremendous work. Uh, work. Um, it's like the number for women getting paid leave in the U.S. is anywhere between 45% and 63%, which is very radically different than this 15%. And you'll say, well, what about the others? Should the government provide paid leave? And there's an increased call um, by conservative that this is an area where conservatives should be supportive of government action. We know these backfire. I mean, like, if whether the government is paying for it or your employer is paying for it, whether we're, uh, your employers is... It, the way it usually evolves is that basically your employer man, is mandated to give paid leave policy and the government ends up paying for it. And people think, well, if it's just a question of time, no biggie. Well, actually, it is a problem because the opportunity cost to an employer is not just the money that it pays you, but it's also the time where you're not there. And we've seen very clearly the result is more discrimination towards women and a reluctance, a small, a marginal reluctance to hire women of childbearing age and also a um, uh, lower wages. Again, there's no, there, there's no free lunch. So some conservatives have been saying, we totally understand this. We don't want to go the mandate route. How about we uh, use Social Security benefits? I've written extensively about this, and Rachel has, and so has Vanessa. Um, and it's a terrible idea for a variety of uh, reasons. But I will give you one of my reasons. is that Even though it's sold as a revenue-spending neutral policy, uh, on paper, this is going to, first, it increases the, the scope of government, right? This is an area where the government wasn't involved, and now it's going to be involved. And over time, because the pressure for government to actually extend these benefits to a bunch of different things and to actually, because the way it would work is you would uh, take the benefits now and you would pay it, uh, you would retire later, <laughs> right? 
Right. Who believes that government is ever going to be extracting uh, that uh, that payment? You know, it's like it's like when you tell your children, "Dessert now, spinach later." No, it's not going to happen. So, what's going to happen with political pressure? You're going to end up with not only an increase in the scope of government, but in the size of government. Again, I don't have enough time to to talk about this, but I, we can talk about it during the Q&A, and I've written extens- extensively about this with um, Jason Victor and Charles Blahouse. We have a paper specifically on looking at this issue, and again, just, you know, I guess, I don't know, we can we can send you links if you if you ask to, others have done a lot of good research. But it's, it's interesting to see that this proposal for using Social Security as a way to provide paid leave comes because conservatives do have an understanding that mandate and government intervention often backfire and have create distortions in the labor market. So that's that. But this is not an appropriate way to do it. Not to mention that it's another also great thing. It's like we went from 16% of women who really in the 60s reported getting benefits to uh, depending on how you measure, it's 63%. And it's and the number, by the way, ends at uh, 2008. And if you remember, in the last year, the number of big, big companies who've actually come out saying that they were going to expand their paid leave policy or they were going to uh, they were going to uh, to provide paid leave is there was a, a lot of companies um, talking about this. And it makes sense when the economy is growing, you wanna you wanna keep your good employees and women, they rock. So um, so that's one thing to consider. The other issue I've, I want to talk to you about, and it's not because one, it's one where I think conservative women are at risk of falling for it, but sometimes you will find yourself in a debate with um, Democrats or even independents who will say, what about the pay gap? There's a pay gap, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, you hear it all the time. You're like, the paid gap. It's like women are paid, it depends, they go like 79 cents on the dollar when men are paid the whole dollar. It's discrimination. So then whether the question of the paid gap. So that number, so I think now it's like 81, 81 cents on the dollar. Um, and by the way, it used to be way lower than this. It was like it used to be 50 cents on the dollar. So things have improved, even when you look at this measure. Uh, this measure, it's a real number, saying it's a fake number is not true. It's like you take all the women who work full-time and and, and their median uh, salary, and you divide those numbers, and you do the same for the men, and this is what you find. So it's a, it's a real number. The problem with it is that it actually doesn't control for a lot of things. It's comparing orange and apples uh, or... What is it? Venus and Mars, like you know, and and so it's it's not it's not a, it's just not an informative factor. So when you control for uh, education, for professions, for a whole lot of things, you see that that gap just shrink quite dramatically. There's still a gap. So then the question is like, what's this gap? What is it for? Is it because of discrimination against women? And there, I will recommend. Write it down. You must listen. If you want to just get it and, um, and in an easy way, I would listen the podcast, the Freakonomics podcast with Harvard economist Claudia Godwin. She's hardly a raging libertarian, by the way. She's a labor economist, a historian uh, labor economist. She's 
And what her research has found is that actually, when you actually control for other things and look at what this gap is, while there are some areas or some cases where you could point out that there's discrimination, it's not that. It's what she's called woman's desire for temporal flexibility. And it falls and it goes back to what, what is temporal flexibility? Is that, again, culturally, biologically, whatever it is, women tend to be caregivers of our children, of our parents, of our siblings, of whomever, of the world. And that means that we would prefer having employments that actually allow us more flexibility, right? And if you control for that, then basically you've explained pretty much all of the gap. When you control for education and, you know, and profession and all that stuff and temporal flexibility, uh, so you, you explain most of the gap. It doesn't mean, again, that there aren't cases of discrimination. But as she said, the smoking gun is really hard to found. It's like it, it used to be easy to found, but it's not. It's not, you know, like, you know, no women hired. The same can be said about minorities. And this is one of the great things. Now, Democrats tend to say, oh, this is a mommy tax, right? It's a, yeah, maybe it's like, it's a, I call it a choice. It's actually a choice. It's a choice that women make. Maybe it's a choice that is, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but maybe it's driven by who we are. Maybe it's driven by our biology. I don't know, and I don't care. What I care about is that women have the choice. And in a world where we have the Internet, where we have Uber, who can drive your children around, even though it may not be legal, um, it's like our lives as well women have improved tremendously. We can do more and more and better and better job and see our even our professional lives converge more and more and more with men thanks to these new techniques. But the reality is that as long as we will be those caretakers, we will be making some choices that have a price to us. You can call it a tax, but what it means is it because of what causes that gap? It's actually, you, you can't fix it through government mandate and government policy. It's much harder. You will require cultural changes, for better or worse. It will require a whole lot of things. I am actually, again, as I said, I'm a proponent that a lot of these choices uh, that women have to make now will be made, made moot by technological advancements. Again, better for better or worse, I mean, you know, there's no, um, everything has a price. But it is, it's really worth kind of remembering these arguments when we talk to people, concerned people who said, what about the pay gap? And and listen to that podcast. It's really great. Read everything by uh, Claudia Golden. It's great. Um, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's really interesting because she comes, she comes at it, I think, from a more liberal sensitivity, and so it's, 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 it's really interesting, 
And so, so, but my warning, my warning to conservative women is in that quest for, you know, better family policies. And we should never forget that government involvement is never free. It always creates distortions. They may, they may never be, some of them may not be visible. Like, I mean, it's just uh, John, uh, Jonathan Gruber, the guy, the Obamacare guy, I mean, he's had done work showing that, because in the U.S., states that a lot of, uh, actually five states really implement really comprehensive paid leave policies. And what he's found, his research has found that basically women in these states, uh, the, their, their wages have gone down, not quite dramatically, but they've gone down. Just the other thing that's kind of interesting is like when you look at, at um, uh, like basically with, with paid gap and uh, it's like as it relates to age, like there are moments where the pay gap doesn't exist, right? Right out of college and when you're out of childbearing age. So it gives you things to think about. And I'll end on this and say, you know, sure, there's always things we could do better. There always things, but we ultimately always have to remember that we should be unbelievably grateful to be women uh, in, a 20, in, in 2018. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Um, we have a mic. Yes. Uh, if you raise your hand, if you give your affiliation, your name and your affiliation, and uh, I'll let you call on okay. people. Uh, okay. Danny. Uh, hi. Uh, Danny Dunn with the Heritage Foundation. Um, I'm so glad you brought up occupational licensing. I was, um, it really makes me angry because uh, I was reading about how in D.C. I think they're requiring daycare providers to have all these degrees now. Um, and it's just, it's, it's horrible what they're doing to not only the people who uh, need these jobs, but also the people who benefit from having people in these positions. One of the things I was wondering about is, what, have you seen any indication from any kind of left side perspective of this? It seems to me that this is something that should cut across the partisan barriers. It absolutely cuts across. This is actually something where I think we're going to make a lot of, um, a lot of progress um, at some point. I mean, if you remember, there was one of uh, President Obama's budget that actually, there's nothing really that the federal government can do, but what he was talking about, what his budget was talking about, it was like, this was a real concern. And because what, what, it, what it does is like, it does, what licensing is for is to basically prevent competition. So what it does is, is, is yeah, it's basically cronyism. It's a way to protect the people who are already in the industry from competition from newcomers who would be offering, you know, either better products or lower price or both, right? And uh, and and it does basically raises the prices for consumers inside these protected jobs. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, uh, understanding on the right and on the left that this hurts newcomers and low-income people. And again, women, it definitely hurts women because on the on the childcare one, it not only hurts women who want to have access to childcare, um, uh, you know, provision, but also it helps the suppliers of of of, of childcare. Uh, so I think it is moving. This is an area where definitely at Mercatus we've done a lot of work on occupational licensing. We it, it, there are a lot of support on the left 
for this. Incidentally, a lot of support on the left and on the right, this is actually, I should be fair to, uh, to Republicans and conservatives on criminal justice reform, there's a, we're moving, we're moving in the right, in the right direction because, um, uh, I, I think there's just, just a clear understanding that a lot of these policy, even though they may not have, in, right, they, as I said, it's like discrimination against black and minorities or against women, I mean, they may not be openly discriminatory. They may be totally race neutral and gender neutral, but the result, the, the ultimate impact of the policy is that they hurt minorities, black and women um, a great deal. Sharon Bovat, I'm voice of a moderate, becoming voice of a libertarian. Uh, recently, Chelsea, we'll have you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Chelsea Clinton was talking about the tampon tax, and so I researched her. And yes, there is a tax on tampons in many states. And yes, I guess Medicaid or some of the affiliate Viagra is for free. So there is some discrimination when it comes to certain areas with women, which is obvious. And also, when you were talking about the um, where the caregivers. I work for myself. The Obamacare has destroyed my life. I make about 70000 a year. My health insurance is about 20000 after taxes. I've looked into moving to Costa Rica. I do not think the Republican Party, the conservatives, and the libertarians have done a good job to explain to the average person how horrible it is for people that want to work. I've been told to not work. If I quit working and I basically funnel money certain ways, I can get free health care, but that's not part of me. That's not part of my DNA. So if you can just talk about Obamacare and how we as conservatives, libertarians, can address this, I think it'll make a big difference. Thank so you. first of all, I'll address your temp tampon tax. So um, this is like a big thing right now. It seems my daughters have alerted me. Um, and, uh, and I, and yes, this is the problem with taxation, right? Is that it's discriminatory, it, especially sales taxes. When you look at, there's no rhyme or reasons for why. I mean, some of it, there's interest group, you can track them, but there's also no rhyme or reason. And I, I, I won't give you a good example because I can't forget it, but during the, the Supreme Court case, the Wayfair, there were a lot of examples of like, if you buy, um, diapers for a gift, it's tax or a blanket for, for a hospital, it's tax. But if you buy it for, can't remember what, it's not tax. There's all these like, uh, there's all these different, it's like, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and, and I think everything should be taxed at the same rate or not. <laughs> tax at all. But um, it, it's the fact that, you know, we're going to, you know, get rid of the tax on on um, on Tampax in order to address the lack of tax on Viagra is, is two wrongs don't make a right. So I think this is a real problem. And this is also a tendency that women have is to say, oh, you know, they get this privilege from the government. Why don't we get that same one? When actually the answer is like, there should be no discrimination between one thing or another. And that's that. On Obamacare, I mean, this is a longer question. I actually think you're right that a lot of people don't understand what's going on. Um, 
And, and I think a lot of people are also scared. The truth of the matter is like the cost of healthcare is really, really high. But what people don't understand is the reason why the cost of healthcare is so, so high, right? Some of it is, is you're getting higher quality care uh, than you did. But a big chunk of this is actually that there's government intervention that jacks up the price. And I think conservatives and libertarians, free market, the free market movement has made a mistake from the get-go um, in focusing on trying to address the demand by Democrats that we needed to fight for a free market provision of insurance, right? The insurance. But whether the government pays for your health care, so the federal government, or it's the state government, which is often a conservative position, we say, let's move it all to the state. Or in insurance, what it is, it's the third party is paying for your health care decisions. And this is not sustainable. It's unsustainable. Now, moral hazard and distortions are less with insurance when it's a private party, but they still exist. I mean, think about this. 11% only of the money we spend on health care is out of pocket. It means that basically... For the most part, someone else is paying for your health care. And the problem is like we have banged our head for decades trying to find a solution without have a problem without a solution, basically, to try to address a problem without a solution. It's like you're not going to get a free market system if your solution is is how do we find someone, how do we make it possible for someone else to pay your bill without distortions? So what we do at the Mercator Center now is like we're done talking about this. I mean, I talked sometimes about the problem caused by third-party payers because I think this is something that people fail to understand. And what we do instead is what we want to we want to free the supply of healthcare. The supply of healthcare, like when you look at areas that are heavy heavily regulated, energy, education, and healthcare, right? They're all areas where there's massive government intervention. And it's not just government interventions. Very often, it's like like we talked about with occupational licensing. It's like interest groups trying to actually demand more regulations to prevent competition. And all of this explains why we haven't seen the kind of innovation and the kind of reduction in prices for things that we consume in healthcare that we've seen in other systems. Think about it. When we, when the free market movement started, was, was talking, started talking about how to provide, how to allow private insurance to compete more. I mean, there weren't even any sales phone. In the meantime, we've made no, almost no progress on that front. And I'm carrying a massively powerful computer in my pockets all the time. We want to do this with healthcare. That means freeing healthcare suppliers, tying the hands of interest group. Again, easy on paper and all this, but it's inspirational. We should be able to actually use telemarketers. We should be able to have our x-rays read by a doctor in, uh, in Australia when it's daytime here. We should be, there's so much we should be able to do. Right to work, right to try is important. Uh, deregulation of the FDA is important. There's so much we can do. And, it, and I'm telling you, my colleague, Bob Grayboys, when he gives a talk, people come out and they're excited. And, and Adam Thier at Mercatus, go check out their work. It's 
really, it's inspirational and it's the right direction about healthcare. We, it's worth, this is a fight worth fighting, right? Uh, it's not going to solve your problem right now. The battle of ideas takes a long time. But I actually believe that the government is always abusing its power. And the more and more insurance is, is unaffordable, the more people are going to actually go outside of the insurance system and more doctors are going to say, you know what? I'm going to serve that population. And, and look, you see it. I mean, I don't have numbers and I really want to do someone to do a number and, and um, a study on this, but low skill immigrants in the country, they don't get their health care. A lot, I mean, contrary to a lot of what you hear, sure, they go to emergency rooms, but they get a lot of their doctors through their Bolivian network, through their, this is not an insurance system, right? And it's not just immigrants. There's just a lot of, and I can guarantee you millennials who like are used to doing Amazon Prime at three o'clock in the morning and getting it on their doorstep, it on their doorstep at seven in the morning. Believe me, this is how it works because I do it. I try to pass myself for a millennial. It's like only works with Amazon. But um, it's like it's going to, and they're not going to tolerate standing in line for government health care provided. They're going to say, screw this. Like there must be an app for that. And there will be an app for this. It's going to take time. It's going to take some adjustments. They're going to be, um, you know, but we need to let entrepreneurs try. And unfortunately, the FDA has a very precautionary uh, mind as opposed to allowing permissionless innovation. But I think there's a moment where they're going to be overwhelmed by the, the what's happening. I wanted to ask you one more question, if I may, um, and then we can talk informally if you all have questions. I love to hear you talk about Social Security, what a deal it is for women. <laughs> yeah. Remind us. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, it's a deal for no one. I mean, but what's what's? Uh, I mean, women actually, women may be the only one to get a little bit. Married women get a little bit out of the system, but for everyone else, single women, single men, minorities, uh, young people, it's a massive redistribution of wealth um, from these groups to married people, uh, white people, and old people, obviously, right? And, uh, and the problem is, like, even for, for even for, it's, and it's, it's really not a bargain. Even, even the people who get the money, they pay way more into the system than they actually get in the end. It's a terrible return on investment. But it is, like, my, my, my real problem with, um, you know, even with my, colleagues, some of my colleagues that I love and adore, when we talk about solvency, I said, to me, social security is not just a financial problem, even though it is. It is an unfair, it's an unfair um, system. It really is. It, it redistributes it. Because, you know, like when in 1935, uh, when, when the system was put in place or so, um, it is true that when you were old and you stopped working, you were poor. There were no financial markets. It's not the case. I mean, Seniors today are overrepresented in the top income quintile, right? And yet we have the system that transfers massive amount of wealth to them. And, they're, and they are, by the way, they're, they're better off because of the market, because of capital markets, because the net wealth have increased so tremendously. And it's a, it's a great thing, right? But it's, so it's not, 
it's really not a, a good deal uh, for anyone. And, and, you know, even if you're a woman, by the way, even for these women who still may get a bit more into it uh, from the system that they pay in, they have children, mm-hmm. and they are taxed, and they are, trans- and, and they are transferring all that money to other people. So my, what I'd like to see, actually, um, is Medicaid is a different situation, but I would like to move away from an age-based uh, entitlement programs, even though, by the way, it's not an entitlement, and uh, and transition to a needs-based. Uh, I think this is, uh, it would make much more sense. But anyway. Thank you so much. What a, what a good talk. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to give you our special little mug here with the famous nice. saying, what yeah. is that? No good deed goes unpunished. There you go. <laughs> this is loose. That's clear, but it's loose. Yeah, thank you. Thank well, you. and from Heritage, too, we have a gift in this wintry weather here, um, a heritage scarf. Um, I, I find uh, Veronique's comments always so provocative and so interesting. Oh, thank you. Um, and I think she gives us really a lot of, um, a lot of things to think about. Uh, a dynamic market is really an innovative place that helps to serve the needs of families and women particularly, I think, as women are juggling. Um, I think the occupational licensing points that she made, uh, regulation, I think, stymies the innovation that more often than not, simplifies our life. Um, you're up at 3 o'clock in the morning ordering Amazon Prime thanks to a, a, an incredible technological device. That well, I'll say that the reason why I was up is because I got a text in the middle of the night from my daughter who was at a sleepover and was kicked out of the mattress where she was. And she was like, <laughs> you still up? And I was like, well, now I'm not. <laughs> so it goes both ways. <laughs> still to serve the needs of your, your uh, children and your family at 3 o'clock in the morning. So thank you so much for thank joining you. us. And we invite you all to join us for lunch uh, outside where we can continue the conversation. So thank you very thank much. You guys. Yes. I love that. Yes. I will. You gave me one last. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a bright little bag. Definitely the weather. Put your gifts into here. Oh, weather. Yes. A little bit. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice It's light, but it's warm. That's what I love about things. No, I always, when we started getting...